Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is the middle of August. It is hot and muggy in certain parts of Europe. It is cold, wet and damp in other parts of Europe. John, on the other hand, has just come back from a quick visit to America. (laughs) Now, we're going to talk about America but we're also going to talk about the rapacious nature of the Irish banking industry. We're going to go from America to the West Lower, and we're going to show you how the Irish banks are actively taking money out of your pocket and describing it as profit. Okay? Bad enough to rob people, but to rob people and then claim that in some way this is due to great management and they're making great profits is bordering on scandalous. So we will... We're going around the houses, but first of all, many years ago, there was a BBC Radio 4 programme every Sunday by a guy called Alastair Cook, a British journalist, and it was called Letter from America. And it was Alastair Cook's take on America every week, and it was inspired, inspired journalism. Brilliant stuff. The Alistair Cook of this podcast was Mr. John Davis. (laughs) How was America, sunshine? I'm sitting here with my MAGA hat on. It was brilliant. Oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> I had a great time. I was, in, I was in Washington for a week, doing a bit of work at a conference and stuff, but I'd never been to Washington before. And it's a, it's a strange city. It's a great city. I really enjoyed it, but it's a strange city. It's a very administrative city. Of course it is. It's yeah. the capital. But what I mean is that like the museums are fantastic with these big, grandiose buildings and stuff. But for a city that size, it struck me that there wasn't that much going on in theatre. Maybe that was just the week that I was there. I, I don't know. But, you know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, Washington then sounds like it's a very good city to see dead artists, but not live ones. Right? <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, actually. <laughs> it's true, though. It's like those yeah. cities that are full of museums. So you sort of, if you want to see oh, somebody who's dead, like, oh, he was very good or she was very good. Yeah, but the museums are brilliant, though. They really are. I mean, there's still the, the usual ones of the air and space, which unfortunately was half closed for renovation, but still amazing. The Natural History Museum, brilliant. Although I do think that London has the edge over it. The Hirshhorn had a brilliant Laurie Anderson room. And then what else? Do we, 
I think one of the best ones was the Native American Museum. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And yeah, learned so much about it, stuff I didn't know at all. You'd love it, Mac. Yeah, no, I'd like to see those. And it's very divided, isn't it? Black and white. Incredibly so. But, but one of the highlights, I have to say, I know you'll laugh at me for this, but I was there for Donald Trump's arraignment. <laughs> of course you were. The courthouse was were. not far from where I was staying. So I tootled on down there. And I tell you, Mac, it was an eye opener. It was absolutely mobbed, but not by protesters, as I expected. But by the media, there were hundreds, hundreds of journalists and camera crews, you know, with their pictures, with lights and tents and makeup and the whole lot. And actually, I was talking to one of the cops there and he was saying that, hey, man, you've got to see this at two in the morning when they're all fighting for their pictures. Like literally fisticuffs break out when they're trying to get their pitch. You know, but, between so CBS is, this, and, and NBC and the whole lot, they're beating lumps out of each other, the cameramen. I love it. I love it. But the thing is, Mac, if you took away all the media, all the cops and all the gawkers like me, you're left with literally a handful of people. You know, the MAGA supporters. Half, half of them were MAGA supporters and the other half were Dems. Right. And they're just... They're just niggling at each other, like shouting at each other, megaphone to megaphone. But I have to say, what I did see was the Dems were a lot more aggressive and goading and nasty than the others. But then I got into a, a shall we say, a robust conversation with two MAGA guys. And they were, they were ultra MAGA, the hats, you know, all buffed up and all the rest. And they were really lovely, polite guys. They were really nice. And I was chatting away. The problem with them was they were thick as shit. They knew nothing about nothing. And they were kind of proud of it as well. As the guy said to me, uh, we just got to get rid of Biden. Got to get rid of these Marxists. And I said, yeah, but (laughs) what if surely Trump is not the answer? He goes, maybe he's not, but he's the best that we have, which is kind of honest. But then the other fella jumped in and started banging on about Europe and trade and how we'd be nothing without the US. And he said, sure, look at the euro. It's so weak and so bad that Great Britain pulled out of the euro. And I'm like, no, no, right. no, I, I don't think that's quite right. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, and, and he goes, oh, whatever, and moved on. You know, it, But actually, while it was kind of funny at times, it was interesting because it, it was a brief glimpse into their kind of thinking and their worldview and their understanding of the big picture. Which sounds quite modest. But, you know, the but point they don't the care thing, either. But that's the thing about democracy, that everyone has a vote and it doesn't matter. If you know, I mean, I remember Donald Trump saying in, in his first election how he, he went on stage and he said, I love the uneducated. I love the exactly. uneducated, right? Yeah. And what he's basically saying to is everyone's vote counts. I mean, you know my opinion of that guy and, and the Republican Party in general. But the fascinating thing about democracy is that at the ballot box, you know, the hyper-intellectual, well-connected, this, that, and the other person is as valid as the MAGA guy in the cap. But it's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a weird uh, city, Washington. The last time I was in Washington, Johns, a long, long time ago, and I, was, I had a really heavy day of interviews, and I interviewed Rudy Giuliani in New York in the morning. Right. And I interviewed Hillary Clinton in Washington in the afternoon, <laughs> right? And at the time, they both hated each other. Completely yeah. hate each other. I'd say they still and, do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Giuliani, Giuliani was kind of at the time it was just after nine eleven, but twenty years ago, 
and Giuliani was regarded as Mayor Julie, Mayor, Mayor yeah, Rudy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember thinking, and there was a kind of a mad look in his eye, you know, when you're interviewing somebody up close. And I just thought, this yeah. guy is... Was there something. oil leaking from his head? <laughs> but, like, you know, but even then, I thought, this guy's a little bit unhinged, right? Yeah. And he went off, he went off on a complete one about Palestinians. He started going on about the Palestinians, Palestinians, Palestinians. And then I said to the cameraman, does he think we're Israeli telly, not Irish telly? <laughs> And he was gone, right? But he was fine. But then I interviewed We're Hillary Clinton. We're talking then. Yeah. And then I went off. And yeah. And then, but then I interviewed Hillary Clinton that afternoon. But the interesting thing is we got the train down from New York to Washington. And the train went through Baltimore, right? Mm. And this was before the wire, or maybe around the time of the wire. And I'd never seen urban dereliction and poverty in a ghetto like the area of Baltimore the train went through. It's well worth going it's and right. again american trains the american infrastructure is so bad that american trains go so incredibly slowly so you can see everything but then interviewing hillary clinton in the afternoon was the one weird thing about hillary clinton was the following john before the interview before the cameras went on she was really chatty really funny really hum- humane personable the whole thing the minute the cameras went on she just turned really wooden as if right. she'd learned how to speak and the cameras went off and she was really chatty and, and somebody would really like to sit down and talk to. But when the cameras went on, she seems as if she decided that the way in which she was going to be credible and presidential was to actually lose all her personality, which is actually what happened in the end. You know, the, her campaigns always came up against this idea that there was something manufactured in the way in which she presented yeah, and, and and it was weird because she's she media almost, trained within an inch of her life. Yeah, and, and, and just sticking to her camera, script. Off yeah. camera, she's yeah, chatty. Yeah. She was telling jokes. She was funny. She was kind of girly. She was kind of flirty. She was like great, really good, good company. Yeah. And then on camera, she was just like, "I want to be president, and this is the way you're going to be president." Do you know the other thing that struck me when I was there is that, and it's something that you touched on before when you were in New York a little while ago, is that. America is stoned. It's completely stoned. <laughs> I think you're right. You're walking around like they, they legalized cannabis, marijuana in a lot of the states in America. And yeah. you know, I'm not against that. And in fact, you're, you're actually very much for that, John. To, but, but actually, I had a, a second thought about that while I was there because you're walking around the streets and it's just wafts of weed everywhere. It'd be the same as walking around town here and seeing people knocking back six packs of hino on a Monday afternoon. Do you know what I mean? But it also added to this perception that I got of a very inefficient America. You know the way we were talking interesting, about Interesting, interesting. America has more or less full employment at the moment. But like, but sometimes it actually feels like there's overemployment. Like a lot of people hanging around or idle, like three people doing the, the same job. But the thing is, it didn't add to any enhanced customer service or anything. In fact, quite the opposite. I mean, the conference I was at, there were people milling around, you know, conferencing. Yes. But then to there's conference. <laughs> to conference, yes. But there were a lot of extra people, and their only job seemed to be to show people where the jacks was. I, in fairness, like I know there's a lot of union workers, which is a good thing to protect jobs and all the rest. But there's a lot of inefficiency as well. Like I was at a conference once a few years ago in San Jose, and I was there as a sound engineer. But because of the union, you had to have a shadow sound engineer shadowing me all the time, doing nothing. He was getting paid 50 quid an hour or something to do nothing for three days. 
But it was that kind of thing. It was kind of almost un-American. It's very unexpected. Little did we know that I would turn into the Arthur Scargill of the uh, <laughs> podcast Defending Unions and John, John the Michael Heseltine, the anti-union, <laughs> the red terror. I tell you, it's because of our unions. As we're reading the Daily Mail sidebar as we speak, the sidebar of shame, right? It's all migrants and unionized workers. But it's a very important point you say about inefficiency, right? Because I want to talk about banks today, John. Yeah. What intrigues me about America is they still use checks. Absolutely. That's they use the other books, thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it is like, and it's, it's funny, you know, because you look around the world, what globalization has done, it means that the world has really, really speeded up dramatically, right? Mm. So countries that used to be poor are now rich. People who used to be poor are now rich. Countries that used to be rich are now poor. The whole thing is kind of unhinged. What you see is new companies all the time, new technologies, new advances. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if you go to most places in Europe, technologically, it is miles ahead of America. If you go to Asia, it's technologically miles ahead of Europe. Mm. And I think you're absolutely right. There is a sort of a an extraordinary, America feels like kind of Starsky and Hutch. It kind of feels very seventies. You know what I mean? It does. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Does. You're absolutely and, right. And, and and it seems as if, you know, technologically they haven't really adapted very very well. With the exception, of course, of the areas where they're technologically preeminent, your yeah. Silicon Valleys and all those things. But your average, you know, Joe working for the government, you know, is much more likely to be living in a world that looks and feels like two thousand and five than is the case in Europe. There's no yeah. doubt of this, you know? I mean, and in banking is where you see it because the checkbook, right? The checkbook is a technology, John, invented by merchants in the 14th century. It was called the letter 14th of 14th century. 14th wow. century, right? So basically you had these things called bills of exchange, right? Mm. Which were in effect as, if I'm a merchant and I'm, let's say I'm a, I'm a Florentine merchant and I'm in Avignon selling my wares, right? How do I get paid and how do I pay? Well, I could lug gold and silver up across the Appian Way all the way up and end up in Avignon. Or I take a letter of credit from somebody, right? I will promise to pay you next week when I get back home, right? Yeah. That's the check. That's where it comes from. It's a, it's a five-century-old financial technology that the Americans are still using. Yes. Nobody else is yeah, using it. Yeah, they are. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's... It's a, it's a very strange place when it comes to those sort of things, which is that on the one hand, it is unbelievably advanced in some areas, but on the other hand, it's unbelievably backward. Unbelievably yeah. backward, you know? Yeah. And I'm not too sure why that is. Maybe it's the fact that America is absolutely protected. So you've got the Pacific, you've got the Atlantic. It's a big geographical entity. It's so big, it can trade with itself. Right? It doesn't need to trade with anybody else if it wants, right? It's, it's, it's energy independent when it wants to be. It's food independent if it wants to be. It is militarily independent. It's got the biggest navy in the world. You know, it can really insulate itself from the world. This is what and the MAGA what guys were saying. This is what the MAGA guys were saying is that, you know, they were proud to be insular. And they didn't understand the whole idea of international trade and globalization and, and the importance of that. They didn't care. They just wanted to be self-sufficient and forget about everybody else around the world. But the interesting thing is they, they can do that. The Americans can do that. Yeah. It's the only country in the world 
that can actually pull back from the world in the event of a massive global crisis and probably be okay. Yeah. That's the strange thing, right? Because it is secure militarily, which you can't say that for almost any other country in the world. No other army can get at America because the American Navy is the biggest in the world. They're hardly going to be yeah. invaded by the Canadians. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they've created in Mexico a sort of a frontier state that is part of the American world, right? They've got all this energy in the world that they need with their shale energy. They've got all the food they need. So in a way, America is one bizarre country. But the flip side of that is they are quite backward technologically. Yeah. They're not yeah. really that plugged in. Well, listen, what we'll do is, you know, there was a, there was a great, I've, I've got a new name for you now. There was a great French writer called Alexis de Tocqueville, right? And the Tocqueville's oh, like America, that. written in 1831, right? It was an amazing European perspective on America. I'm going to give you that book, right? And you are now the de Tocqueville, pottering around the United States, taking notes, taking notes and issuing erudite <laughs> observations about the Yanks. Right. Well, we'll For come our, back to. I've I've lots more to say on on America, but we'll come back to it in, in another podcast. Now, John, I want to talk about the scandal that is the Irish banking system. We're going to leave America. We're going to leave the museum pieces. We're going to go to the West Lower, the Aviva, where a deal has been done to stitch up an asset and imperil the people who actually make the asset run, who are the savers. We'll do this after the break. Let's get a few points first. Point now. 
So, Mark, what's this deal? What, what, what have you been working on? Okay, I'm down the West Lower. On. We're down the West Lower. I've got my sheepskin coat on. My collars are up. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the banks. So, Quentin is back in. Quentin's yep. back. He's making a few quid. This is about the Irish state selling the last 50% of AIB over the course of the next couple of years to some investor. Now, who's going to make money on this? Is Quentin in the middle doing the deal, right? Yeah. The Irish stockbrokers who are going to be anointed with the task of selling the asset. So this, this, this is what's going on. We're going to talk about the deal, but we're going to talk about what is happening. Have you ever heard the expression, which I think is probably very, very apt for the West Lower, fattening the pig? Yes. So in traditional Christian societies, what basically happened was people couldn't afford to eat meat all the time. They only ate meat at festivals or big, big days, right? So the turkey and ham, the ham bit of the turkey and ham comes from the fact that pork and pigs were eaten by Christians at Christmas time. And it was a big deal. But of course, in order to get more ham out of the pig, you can't fatten the pig in December. You've got to start fattening the pig early doors. Like feed lots of acorns and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So basically then what happens is you fatten up the pig so that the poor old pig is enormous by the time the poor creature is slaughtered and then there's more pork to go around. Yeah. So keep that idea of more pork to go around in your head, right? What the Irish government doing is it's allowing the Irish banks to fatten themselves up to make loads and loads and loads of profits before they sell them. So there's more pork to go around for the West Lower, right? So imagine that. How are they doing this and how does this impact in Ireland? Let's start at the very beginning, right? The story is okay. fascinating. It will annoy you. It'll infuriate you, but hopefully it'll educate you as to what is going on. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Irish banks bailed out 15 years ago because they had imperiled the nation so much that they led the country into a bank run. The bank run would have led to the vast majority of the average punter losing their savings because the banks didn't have the money. They'd spent it all on shitty investments. Right. We know that. At that stage, your choices policy-wise, they're not between good and bad. They're always between bad and worse. How do we do this? The supposition was the state will undertake to make sure that the people, the savers, don't lose their savings. But the idea was that left to their own devices, the Irish banks couldn't be trusted. That's really what happened. Yeah. And that was absolutely right, that they were shafting the public then. They are again shafting the public now, John, 15 years later. How so? So how a bank makes money is it charges more for loans than it actually pays out on the rate of interest. Yeah. So what the Irish banks are doing is the following. In the last five or six months, the ECB has begun to raise interest rates, right? Now, what the ECB is raising interest rates in order to bear down on inflation. So the idea of raising interest rates is that the reward to saving goes up as the rate of interest goes up. What that means is that more people will choose to save, not spend. And what that means is that the economy will actually start to slow down, right? If and only if the rate of interest increase or decreases are passed on to the final consumer, right? Yeah. So what the ECB wants to do is it wants the final consumer to make a choice. I'm not going to spend money on going out for dinner or going out to the pub. I'm going to save. 
Yeah. So therefore, the rate of interest has to rise, right? So what it says is that we are raising the rate of interest so that the income associated with saving increases. Yep, that makes sense. That income is not the bank's income, it's the saver's income. Yeah. But if you look at Ireland, Irish banks are the worst performing in the whole of Europe at passing on increases in interest rates to savers. Irish banks have only passed on, think about this, right? Since the ECB started raising rates, they've only passed on 7% of each increase to the saver. So Irish savers are not seeing any increase or material increase in their rate of interest they're getting on their savings. In contrast, the banks in the UK, and I know we give the UK a hard time every now and then, right? But the banks in the UK have passed on 43% of all those interest rate hikes. Wow. So the UK banks are five or six times more positive to savers than the Irish banks, right? So this is an extraordinary thing. So what is happening is the Irish banks are cheating people out of their income. But how how can they do that? I mean, as you say, it's a tool used by the ECB to get people to save more. To save and to reward and, saving and to yeah, save and, even and, incentive to save. So this is kind of working against the ECB? It's working completely against the ECB. So what's happening here, right? The income that you should get from your savings, if interest rates go from one to four and a half percent, is your income. It's yes. not the bank's income, it's yeah. yours. But the bank is not passing on this. So what the bank is doing, it's taking your money in, it's giving you 1%, it's depositing that money at the central bank at 4.5%, and it's trousering the 3% in the middle, which is yours, right? (laughs) It's amazing, right? At the same time, they're very quick to up the interest rates on mortgages. I'm going to show you, right? So we are the worst performing in terms of the amount of money that savers are getting. And I want to reiterate this. This is robbery because the income from savings is the saver's income. It is not the bank's income. The bank holds the saver's assets, the savings in trust. It's what you call a trust creditor, right? Yeah, yeah. But that trust has been broken by the fact that the Irish banks, much worse than any other banks, six times worse than the English banks, are keeping all the money for themselves, right? So they're actually robbing the money, right? If you earn money, John, and I take it, I have robbed you. That's pretty obvious. So that's on the one side. On the other side, the Irish banks have, in the last five years, charged on average 1.5% more than any other European bank for loans, for mortgage loans, right? For example. So every single year they've been basically penalizing borrowers. So they're penalizing savers by not giving them enough money. They're penalizing borrowers by charging them far too much money. They're trousering the bit in the middle, right? Now, analysts have said that this probably is costing the Irish economy about 120 million euros a month, every month, right? Whoa, right, okay. okay because, because there's a lot of money out there. There's one, mm. one and a half, there's probably about 140 billion of savings, So what you're seeing is this money has been taken out of the economy, but more importantly, it's been actually taken by the banks and not given to savers. Mm. So you have this bizarre situation where the banks are making so-called profits, in inverted commas, 
But those profits are largely coming from not passing on the increase in interest rates to the saver. So they're not profits because profits kind of suggest to you that, oh, the management are really good and they're doing something really yeah. clever and they're, you know, all that. Because yeah. that's what and it means. And they, they state these profits very proudly. Like, aren't we performing exactly. well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, for example, Irish banks, John, right? The three of them, Bank of Ireland, AIB and Permo. Yeah. This is their own quote from their own press release. Delivered, and I, this is in the inverted columns, exceptionally strong results. Generating <laughs> combined income of over 1.7 billion in the half-year stage, helped in part by the deposits they place in the European Central Bank and the deposit rates they pay customers. Now, think about this. Helped in part. Now, let's go down and look at it. Helped almost overwhelmingly by the fact that they're taking your money and paying you 1% or even 0% in many, many cases, right? And they're depositing that at the central bank at 4%, right? So it's a complete and utter scam, right? Well, can, and can as I... they say, it's exceptionally strong results as if they're doing something brilliant. What they're actually doing is taking punters' money and robbing it. So let me, let me think about this. The central bank's role in this is they're there ah. to be the overseer of the banking system and keep the banking system in line. What are they doing? What's Magaluf okay. doing? So this is, this is Magaluf is actually down in Magaluf. He's had uh, four blue wickets. and uh, <laughs> He's in so, some tiki bar somewhere. He's in some tiki bar in Magaluf. No, so this is the fattening up the pig idea, right? Yeah. This is where we go back to the West Lower. Quentin's at the bar at the moment. He's buying yeah. rounds for everyone because he's absolutely in clover, right? You know, and Sean and Mick and Declan have all done the deal. It's all good. Nobody's saying a word. During the crisis, not only did one bank go bust in Ireland, they all went bust. They all needed a bailout in some shape or form, right? Yeah. So the legacy of that is the Irish state owns half of AIB. They now want to sell AIB. So they're fattening up the pigs. How do you fatten up the pig? You bloat its profits. How do you bloat its profits? You try to make money. What's the best way? To, what's the easiest way to make money? Take somebody else's money. That's easy yes. money, right? Yeah. So the Irish Central Bank and the Irish State, the Department of Finance, are well aware of what's going on. They're well aware that the people are being actually actively plundered in order to artificially boost the profits of AIP in order to get the best price for the state when they sell it. Yeah. But the problem with getting the best price for the state when they sell it is that who actually benefits? The state or the private owners of the banks? The private owners of the bank, the shareholders, right? And of course, the new owners of the bank, they benefited. Why? Because the state is basically only doing, if you imagine a balance sheet, right? Yeah. The state is selling the asset back to itself, okay? So it's kind of crazy. So all we have is this weird situation where Ireland is putting the interests of the future owners of AIB before the interests of the hundreds of thousands of savers who form the backbone of AIB. And they can do all this because the Irish banking market is closed. It's a captive market. Right. So Irish people can't easily save elsewhere. You can't open a bank account in Germany. You can't easily open a bank account in France. So what you have is you have a captive market. You've only two big players in effect, AIB and Bank of Ireland, one of which the state owns. They're trying to fatten up AIB to sell it. So all this questionable practices, which I would call thievery, 
is being not only are the state looking the other way, John, they're actively encouraging it. But can I just ask you then, why in that case, if the Irish banking system can be so profitable, inverted commas, yeah. why were some of the foreign banks leaving, Ulster Bank and all the others? Why are they good, leaving? Were good they- question. This is a good question. And this is actually what the bankers will argue. And it's a very fair point, right? So it's got to do with the way in which Ireland dealt with the housing collapse and the housing crisis and Mm. the repossessions, right? So in fairness to bankers, they lend money, they should get paid back, right? Yeah. They charge interest, they should get paid back that interest. If you default on that contract, there should be some penalty. Yeah. So that's what they would say. So what happens in Ireland was that during the crash, particularly from 2008 to about 2013, we got these mass, mass repossessions. So let's say we had about 700,000 mortgages in the country. About 100,000 of them were in default. So that meant that those assets that the bank had, i.e. those mortgages, were not being paid back. So in other countries, what happens in that case is the bank says, look, you said you'd pay me back the money. You can't pay me back the money. We're going to repossess that house. We're going to sell that house onto somebody else. There's going to be a new mortgage and we have new business, right? So they recover bad loans and there has to be bad loan recovery. There has to be a mechanism yeah. to allow this to happen. But the Irish state, because we had bailed them out and because of our history with, I think, landlordism and our history with the Land League and our history with the three Fs. Do you remember the yes. fair rent, fixity of tenure, and free sale of the right of the occupant, right? Because of those ideas, they're so deeply ingrained in our history. The state and the courts always sided with the tenants and the homeowners and not the banks. Right. So what this meant was that the banks had a whole load of bad loans on their books that they couldn't in any way get the money back. So, for example, the central bank estimated in 2018 that only 8,400 Irish mortgage holders had seen their homes repossessed. It's an incredibly low figure, given that there was about 100,000 mortgages in default. Right, okay. So of those in default, only 8% were ever actually reclaimed by the banks, right? And this, of course, what, what that means is, John, if you have those bad loans in a bank, you then have to raise more capital to cover your capital adequacy ratios simply because those loans are bad and you're not getting any yeah. money back. It's also estimated, right, that it takes on average in Ireland, even those ones that were foreclosed on, 81 months for the process to actually work. This compares to 18 months in the UK, Denmark, right. Norway, Sweden, 24 months in Finland, Netherlands, and 30 months in Austria and Germany. In Ireland, if a loan isn't being repaid, the bank goes to the court, they're only successful in 11% of the times, of the cases, right? This is significantly lower than the EU average, which is 46%. And some countries like the Netherlands and Luxembourg, the repossession rate and success rate for repossessions is much higher. It's between 80 and 90%. Now, what this means, John, what all this means is that foreign banks look at Ireland and they say, okay, that is a country where, yes, you can make loads of money because the government allows you play the spread between deposits yeah. and 
lenders. But in the event of a crash, of a coming crash, you will never, ever recover your money. So the risk premium in Ireland, despite it being manna from heaven for the West Lower and all the insiders, the actual risk premium is very, very high. So because the foreign banks look at the repossession dynamics and they say, we can't do business in that country because if we lend money to people and those mortgages are taken out, if Ireland hits the buffers, and Ireland does have a typical cycle of about 11 to 12 years when we go up and down and up and down. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. that cycle, we'll end up in court without being able to get our money back. So that's why they're not coming in. So we have the worst of all worlds, John. We have a captive market, which is being plundered by the existing banks, but we have a legal and social framework with respect to mortgages that prevents the foreign banks coming in, injecting competition, giving us therefore better mortgage rates for borrowers and better savings rates for savers. So we're stuck. So in a way, the banks are milking the system both ways because the legal system is going against the business case for banks and the business case for banks is going against competition. And once you have no competition, you can do what you want. And all the while, the state is trying to sell the banks to somebody else and it's fattening the pig, so it's looking the other way. But if, uh, I don't know if this is possible, but if the banks use some of that profit to reduce the mortgage interest rates, they'd have less defaulters. They would have less defaulters, but they don't want to do that. Now, this is why what you have is the Italians brought in a windfall tax on profits. This is happening, this is not just in Ireland, this is all over Europe. Banks are making a fortune. Okay. The Irish banks are much worse than anybody yeah, else. Yeah. The Italians introduced a windfall tax on profits. I think it's a good idea. The Italians then backtracked. Why? Because the windfall tax caused the bank shares to fall. But that should be the objective. That's, I don't know why they, they backtracked because of share price falling. The objective is that the share price falls, right? The objective is that the bank recalibrates. I think what you could do in Ireland, right, is you could say, okay, that repossession, that was a one-off problem due to the crash. That was a one-off situation where people were hoodwinked into getting mortgages and everybody, you know, there was a frenzy abroad, right? That's now over. From here on, we will have the same repossession legislation as, for example, Europeans, right? Yeah. So that you have basically a set of guidelines that says, if you default and la, 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 and you can't pay back, eventually there has to be a penalty. And that yeah. allows the banks to actually have a real business case here, right, for mortgaging. But we've got to be careful, though, of, of the, our homeless situation. You don't want to increase you, people on the streets. Of course we don't. We want to solve that problem. We want to solve that problem. But there's a lot of people would argue that one of the dilemmas for young people trying to buy houses is that there are still lots of people in homes that are not actually paying their mortgages. In other countries, those homes come back on the market to people who are prepared to pay mortgages. Right. They can't, right? So there is a dilemma. But I, well, I'll go back to it. Yeah, you have to be aware of the social aspect. I mean, the key to all this is just build more social houses. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so that's the obvious thing, right? You know, do the Viennese model. Be like Vienna build cooperative social housing, take the profit out of the equation, take developers out of the equation, and hey, presto, house prices fall. We know yeah. that, number one. But number two, have a legal system that doesn't 
only protect the borrower. It also protects the lender. In this case, the lenders are the banks. And it acknowledges that there's two sides of the equation. And then finally, have a windfall tax to penalize the banks so that they don't cheat people on the deposits. And I think that's not that difficult to do. I mean, this is the amazing thing about Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's to stop you doing that? Now, the only, let's go back to the West Lower, (laughs) the only thing in my head that's stopping you doing that is you're trying to protect the interests of a very small section of the financial community that benefits from the sale of AIB. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any sense any other way. The country is running massive surpluses, right? So the sale of AIB ain't going to make any difference to us at all. At all. Yeah. Whereas if, if the government remained an owner of AIB, they could use AIB as the lead bank to execute all these various policies. So they could actually oversee the thing from the inside. So I am a bit flummoxed, John, as to what is going on, other than back to our insiders and outsiders discussion. Exactly. Of the other. I was going right. to say that. Yeah. This is the ultimate insider-outsider situation. Dilemma. Exactly. And of course, because there are hundreds of thousands of depositors, the outsiders are never sufficiently well organized to actually come together and make a stand. And because there are very few insiders, it's this thing called minority rule, John, which is yeah. that in many, many situations, we always think the majority rules because it sounds right, but that's not the case. In many, many situations, the minority rules because they have more to lose by not ruling. And the majority are like, yeah, I'm just getting on my life. Did I, did I get money in my savings? No, not really, but I haven't got money for five or six years, so I'm not that worried. And all the while, the insiders win. And we're back to our insiders and outsiders. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.